This show is sponsored by the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin-only hardware wallet by Shift Crypto. If you're new to Bitcoin and you're looking to get started with self-custody, which you should definitely be doing, uh, this hardware wallet is a great way to get started. It's easy to set up and it's easy to use. It's also got a lot of great features for more advanced users that I've uh, been appreciating, such as the ability to roll your own seed, coin control, connect to your own node, Raspi Blitz, MyNode, Umbral, and others, um, connect via Tor. And if you're using multi-sig solutions and you'd like to reduce the supply chain attack surface and you want to mix in a, a hardware wallet from another manufacturer, I think this is a great option. And uh, the BitBox is compatible with wallets like Spectre, Sparrow, and others. I've been using it a bunch lately and I've been really happy with it. So if you would like to learn more about it, check out the specs. Go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire where you can get 5% off. Let's do it. All right, we're live. Ray, great to uh, reconnect with you, man. Thanks for coming on. The honor is mine. So uh, I've got a lot of stuff I want to discuss with you. You've been doing a lot of amazing things in the Bitcoin space for a while now. Uh, but before we get rolling on that, perhaps for people that aren't familiar with you, maybe a, a brief intro to you and the company is warranted. So why don't you go ahead? Sure. My name is Ray Youssef, CEO and co-founder of Paxful. Paxful will be celebrating its six-year anniversary right now, actually. And uh, I started off uh, as an immigrant first generation to New York City, worked my way up, went to City College, taught myself how to code, and went through about 14 startups, 11 of them were failures. And everything I've learned got me to this point to fix the money problem. <laughs> amen, amen. Uh, and before we get into the money problem, you know, you've got a, a very interesting story. So as far as I know, you moved to New York City when you were two or three years old, uh, had a very sort of entrepreneurial uh, upbringing because I think you had to, given your family situation at the time, learned kind of on the streets how to do business. And then, yeah. uh, as, as you said, we're involved in a bunch of startups. I think if I recall correctly, you said, um, you know, your first two or three were successful and then your latter, or your first two were successful and the next 11 were not. And then I guess the 14th has been a resounding success, but um Give me some insight into what it was like to be successful right off the hop, you know, coming from the background that you came from, you know, what was that experience like? It was very, it was a huge trial because, you know, as an immigrant, as a minority, you know, my parents were school teachers, right? I didn't come from a place of money or a place of connections. You know, when you have success, uh, it's great. I bought my mother a a brownstone in New York with that money and that made me feel great. I took care of my family, but I didn't really know how to manage success. And this is the truth with a lot of, a lot of people that come from minority backgrounds, right? There's no guidance there. I didn't have any mentors. The only mentor I had eventually, uh, you know, he hurt me on the business deal side and uh, you really have to understand what you want out of life. And I, I just wasn't ready. I was, I got very arrogant and I thought I had the magic touch, you know, it was my first two were so successful. And then I thought I'd come back again and, you know, hit another home run because my mother got a divorce. So I had to buy her a new house. And, you know, God has a way of uh, humbling us and grounding us, preparing us for things that are far greater than anything we can imagine. That's what happened to me, 11 failures in a row, you know, in the prime of my life 
know, living in New York, not having any kind of life except trying to grind out another success was I just wouldn't give up. I was what you call an unhirable, right? <laughs> and to, you know, to go through one or two failures and keep coming back is, is amazing. Anyone that even bounces back after the first failure is, is tremendous. I respect them so much. But to go through 11 in a row, I would only describe that as a kind of mental illness, you know, honestly, that's, that's what it is, serial entrepreneurship. Like when people ask me, what is serial entrepreneurship? I say, I say well, it depends on the level you want to take it, but I would describe it as a mental illness at a certain point. Like, why do you keep coming back for that kind of punishment, right? That's the question. And these were 11 like established standalone formal companies and projects that you were trying to, you know, get off the ground when we talk about 11 failures, right? Yeah, I mean, a good revenue stream as well, but I had to achieve greater than what I just like, no, scratch that, I'm off to the next. I needed something big. I needed to self, and I needed to do something that would change the world. It wasn't just about making money or another revenue stream here or there and whatever I needed to do I would involve myself in a hundred percent right so there's no room for anything else I know that's kind of crazy but that's just how I'm wired I don't know what else to say about that like there was no and I had no life no girlfriend there was no relationships there was nothing Ray our uh, our connection is a little spotty so I'm going to kill my video uh right now just to see if that improves anything. I'll bring it back if we, if we get a good stretch. But I did, I did hear your response. And I mean, can you, tell, can you share what some of those like, companies were? Like where, where your head was at, what you were trying to achieve with some of these companies? Yeah, almost all of them were peer-to-peer. -peer, you know, like my first startup um, was peer-to-peer -peer ringtones. And that was very successful. Um, and then I, you know, everything else I did was peer-to-peer. -peer. It was peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, peer-to-peer -peer music, peer-to-peer -peer various social network constructs that I did. Like after the ringtones, I did another startup, which was uh, was featured in Wired. I got national TV. We were the first ones to make virtual gifts work, kind of like NFTs. And we had an online credit system and our own token. Actually, this was back in 2004. And, uh, you know, every single startup that I had, the biggest challenge was always payments, right? Billing, like my first startup, Ringtones. The chargeback problem was huge because our core user base was essentially unbanked. It was teenagers that just wanted a great ringtone. And they had to borrow their mother's credit card and put in these charges behind their back and then eventually get charged back, right? So it all came down to payments, but, you know, peer-to-peer -peer is really what I've been doing for almost 20 years. You know, I've been doing peer-to-peer -peer since the very beginning before people understood what peer-to-peer -peer was. Like my first startup, it was peer-to-peer -peer ringtones right when Napster went down, right? So it's all a matter of leveraging a social network and an intense attraction to something. You know, if you think about ringtones, it's a really interesting dynamic because it's a very different market than music, right? Like why do people want a ringtone? It's not for the same reason they listen to music. It's more of a way to express their identity. It's more like buying a car, actually. It's more like the auto industry than the music industry. Right. Like music is the central piece of content there. So I, I became really just almost obsessed 
actually completely obsessed with, you know, the motivations of humans and how you can structure those motivations within a kind of social framework to get people to generate value for yourself and for others. So file sharing, music sharing, I started, I even started a project that was uh, trying to resurrect open source living science. And, uh, you know, I packaged up all of Nikola Tesla's works. I collected literally hundreds of volumes from the Victorian era, published them online. I wrote hundreds of articles. It was really a huge range of projects, but it was all about like whatever interest I had at the time, whatever problem I saw and needed solving. I went to Occupy Wall Street right after the Egyptian revolution, actually. Actually, so first I went to the Egyptian revolution when I heard about it. I went right to Tahrir Square. I got on a plane. I was the only one on the plane trying to get into the country. Everyone was trying to escape. And when I got there, I got there for the bloodiest night of the fighting. It was uh, the night of the camel on July, January 25th. 2011 and to make a long story short 800 people died that night as we were fighting in Tahrir Square I managed to survive it's a really an incredible story I got arrested by the uh, Egyptian army the, the Muslim brother arrested me they all thought I was CIA all interrogated me and I came back to America and I saw wait a minute everything they're saying about what happened on the ground over there is a complete lie and it kind of started waking me up and then I began to understand that the world that we're living in is actually a complete illusion. And then eventually that led me to occupy Wall Street, right? I started figuring things out and I saw that again, at the heart of everything is this money problem. If it's a startup, it's always payments, but it's even deeper than that. What is money? What is it? Is money paper? Is it gold or is it silver? And it wasn't any of those things. It was just human work packaged up to transcend space and time allow us to transact freely and the more I began to understand about what money actually was I saw that what we were dealing with in the world wasn't actually money it was just packaged debt constructing a kind of financial apartheid network right and it led me to occupy Wall Street I had another amazing experience there and every step I took kind of led me deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole until I began to see that if we don't fix this money problem everything else just doesn't matter. Like oh, the protesting doesn't work. Nothing else works unless you fix the pillar of money, which is the first pillar of power that fell to the dark side, right? So that means us good guys have to reverse engineer then their template and take it back. I'm doing a lot of nodding, just so you know. I know you can't see me, but I'm doing a lot of nodding there. Um, couldn't agree more uh, with that. I do want to go back, you know, before we, we talk about fix the money. Um, how did you get out of that situation in Egypt? You know, you, you said you were arrested. You, you, you came out with your life. Uh, how did you release yourself? Uh, I didn't release myself at all. I was just <laughs> a, some dumb bastard that could barely speak Arabic and, and went there. And everyone thought I was Mossad or CIA or something. And literally by the grace of God, like the fact that I managed to get out of Tahrir Square during that, all that fighting after I was wounded and poisoned and, and I, I literally, God was just you, me you were wounded. Me. Yeah, I caught a huge rock right in my face. Like it was an actual like massive skirmish the entire time. Like, I, you know, towards the end of the night, there were people there that, you know, were, were nearly cut in half machetes. People had their they brought shotguns in that even brought snipers. You know, 800 young Egyptian boys died that one night. Right. They don't show that on television. I don't have any proof. And I was even there, it was the uh, the army took all my, my phone and everything, but 
there's this one video caught by front lines of me I like being dragged off the front after I got hurt screaming long live Egypt and that's the only proof I have that I was even there but I managed to actually escape Tahrir after I got wounded I was bandaged up I could barely walk and they were blocking off all the entrances they didn't want us to escape but somehow by the again by the grace of God I stumbled out and started walking around and I met this one guy named Yahya Yahya is the Arabic word for John and uh, this guy said, hey, man, are you all right? Like, where are you from? Anyway, he took me to the uh, the old resistance HQ there, and I met some really amazing characters. I don't have any way to get in contact with them, but they they tried to tell me that what was going on there wasn't real, that it was orchestrated by other forces, a kind of orange revolution. At the time, I didn't believe them. But then I came to see that they were right. But oh, yeah, I'll... Whatever happens in the world, you know, is is done to get people to react to it, right? And that is the main lever of power when you control the media. If you can get people to be reactive, especially young people, you won. And our power lies in not being reactive. Our power lies in being grounded and focusing on the things that matter. Like Malcolm X, he tried to drive this in into people's heads. He would always say. Instead of getting out and reacting to everything they're trying to make you do with anger or rage or whatever other emotions are based, instead focus on taking back your communities, on adding value to your communities. Look at the corner store. Who owns it? Is it one of your people? If not, you start up a store right next door and you get all of your people to come in and support you and you build up a base of control, financial power in your neighborhoods. You start like that. Instead of trying to be a rapper or a basketball player, focus on that. It might not be as sexy, but it's what gets you to a base of strength. Yeah. And so you managed to get home from this. <clears throat> you know, because I think this is an important message because obviously protests of various kinds persist around the world today. I mean, especially in light of what's happened over the last 18 months. And it's always been my position too that as much as a protest can bring attention to an issue, for example, it's frustrating to see all that energy come out in these big bursts, whether they're marches or protests or, or what have you, and never really lead to any change, right? And I presume that that's the feeling that you had when you came back to the States and being a part of this, these chao this, this chaotic process and these protests and, and thinking, well, we're not addressing the core of the problem here. So how can we expect anything to change as a result of that? And so when you came back from those experiences, I'm assuming that informed your entrepreneurial pursuits. You just didn't land on, on quite the solution yet. As you said, it took a while to go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly right. Because Egypt, you saw a massive protest that eventually got turned against the people and, and brought them back to an even worse place. Right? And then you went to America, went to Occupy Wall Street. I saw a lot of amazing young people there that really wanted to change or camping on Zuccotti Park. But I witnessed firsthand how that movement got co-opted and infiltrated. And I was like, wow, same pattern again here. So this protesting thing doesn't work. What does work, right? That's what we had to figure out. And that, it's, it was around that time that I started hearing about Bitcoin, right? And I, I got a few glimpses of it. I'm like, hmm, sounds like nerd money. But the more I looked into it and I started to see, wait a minute, this, this is actually peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. Like someone actually made this work technically for the first time ever. And I said, okay, if this can actually solve the problem, 
it would be great, but I, I mean, I knew technology, no matter how great it is, doesn't solve problems unless humans are motivated to champion it. And with something like money, which is highly politicized, right? You need a movement of people that were number one, pure hearted, and number two, focused enough to keep on this path, on the straight path, right? And not get diverted by all traps that money has to offer the world of money. It's very dark. So I said, okay, let me go to some Bitcoin meetups and meet these people, see what kind of community this thing is bringing together. Then I'll know if this thing will work or not. My first Bitcoin meetup that I went to, I met my co-founder. And it was his first Bitcoin meetup as well. So, and I was just impressed, not just by him, but by everyone in Bitcoin. Like, yeah, there were anti-social nerds, some were dweebs like myself and quite awkward, but they were good people. Like they really cared. They really understood what they were talking about. They passionately believed in it. And I was like, okay, if these guys can keep this up and be focused on actually delivering products, then we might have something really big here. And I said, okay, we're going to go all in on this. You know, one of the hallmarks, at least in my opinion of Bitcoin is that to truly understand it, it requires a humility. You know, we see examples of the opposite, you know, on Twitter all the time where fill in the blank, uh, intellectual, rich person, famous person comes in, thinks they understand Bitcoin and is here to fix it, you know, that sort of meme. And so I think Bitcoin being a profound truth requires humility to, to understand it fully. And just before we kind of crack into the Paxful story, you know, you said that you had been met with early success and that kind of led you to be somewhat arrogant. And I think you took a gap year, you were involved in boxing MMA. I'd really love to hear that story because I'm a fanatic yeah. for that stuff too. But what other than the failures in that interim period prior to Paxful, uh, what life experiences, what realizations, what, what have you, uh, you know, humbled you, gave you the humility to be able to see what Bitcoin actually represented? Yeah, so before I went on this, um, this ashes journey, you know, in the, in the classic hero's journey, they call it the ashes time, right? When you have Phoenix. to kind of, yeah, you have to yeah. step back and allow yourself to be burned to the ground. So I want to find myself, I want to see who I really was, because previously that I was just literally a nerd living in my brother's basement, my mother's basement, right? I bought her the building, but I was still a total nerd living in my mother's basement, right? Like complete dweeb, right? And, uh, I didn't really know the world at all. I just knew how to build products and I did everything myself. Great, but I had nothing else, literally nothing else. So I decided, okay, I'm gonna test myself. I traveled the world. I taught myself how to box, found great trainers around the world and taught myself MMA and I traveled to Asia. I did these crazy uh, amateur MMA fights out in uh, Midwest, Idaho, etc. It was pretty crazy, like some really? knuckle stuff. You, yeah, so you competed. Yeah, I competed. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. One of the first guy I fought was like 21, undefeated, like 100 pounds heavier than me. It was a great fight, actually. I won the fight, uh, just extremely fast hands. And it was insane because it was literally like being out in the Wild West. <laughs> it, was, it was madness. But, you know, so then video, I had a lot of videos of this stuff. Yeah, I have one video I can share with you. You'll, you'll enjoy it. I'd love it. to, it see, I'd love to see it. Yeah. But then I had some fights where I literally got their living crap beaten out of me, right? And some fights were in the street as well. I remember one time in Asia, I had a near-death experience. But, you know, I was, I was, you know, a big, well-built dude. You know, that also makes you arrogant as well in a lot of ways. But I got humbled and I started training with Egan Machado, uh, who was, you know, one of the greatest BJJ practitioners ever. And uh, 
I remember the first time I started, he said, okay, start with this guy. And this guy was literally like five foot three, like maybe like 130 pounds. This guy tied me up in knots for like a whole hour. So it's, uh, you know, I just had a lot of experience with that. I could literally write a book about this. And every te new teacher, uh, you know, is, I didn't have really have a relationship with my father. It was actually a very bad relationship. And, uh, you know, men that don't have that, they constantly seek out mentors or father figures in their life. And some I found were great uh, and some were not so great. And those were more lessons, you know, stacked on top of everything else. But I became, to under, I came, became very self-reliant. I wouldn't depend on anyone for anything. And the one thing I, I really figured out was that no matter what, I would do my own thinking for myself, no matter what, no matter if someone thought I was stupid or I appeared to be a fool, I would do my own thinking for myself. And I spent actually, you know, after the MMA and boxing and during this whole startup thing, I kind of fell into the science rabbit hole, where I spent seven years of my life reading these old, like everything I could find from the entire Victorian era of science, you know, everything from you know, Faraday to, to Mark Maxwell to Sir Oliver Lodge to William Crookes, who was Nikola Tesla's mentor, to Nikola Tesla, to J.J. Thompson, to all these guys that created the entire modern age. And the more I compared their kind of science to what the kind of science we get nowadays. And so that there is no reconciliation here between these two schools. One is exactly the diametric opposite of the other in ideology and how they present themselves and, or, and everything. So at that point, I had to make a decision, right? Which side is right? And I came to a decision. And then at that point, I had to accept the fact that I thought I believed in God, but I really didn't. I was putting science and what was being parroted by the high priests of scientism above the natural order. And again, that led me down a very deep rabbit hole where I really had to understand like, who do I really put at the highest level? And again, that forced my progress and development. It forced me, kind of drove me, <clears throat> actually not kind of drove me crazy. It did you know, drive me completely crazy because you know, as men, we put a lot of, a lot of worth, a lot of our identity and the knowledge that we have. Like, especially me because, uh, you know, previously I was an atheist and I, you know, I was so into quantum physics and all these things and I would parrot these things off and it was such a huge integral part of my identity. And then I see all of it, everything was completely wrong. Like I was just spouting total nonsense and I thought I was so smart and it just, it breaks a certain part of you, right? It kind of breaks your spine and that has to be rebuilt again. So basically I entered a period where every single Every single thing that I held up and held pride in was completely shattered and broken. All the idols were smashed and I was left with nothing. And it was at this time where, you know, the startup that I did with my co-founder um, was a crypto startup and it didn't work either. And me and him ended up homeless, actually, surfing couches in New York City. I was actually walking the streets a couple nights a week and I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want my mother to find out. But I was at this point like a completely broken man. Like I just didn't know what to do. Like, I mean, 11 failures, like that, you know, it takes its toll on a psyche. Sure. And considering I was falling down multiple rabbit holes at the same time and alone, it really forced me to, to submit to the greater authority, you know, to the creator and ask for help in the most humble and, and submissive to the creator way that you could possibly imagine. And it was very painful, innocent, and I, I cried, and I had no choice but to just beg, like, whoever was listening, help me out here. 
I can't do this myself. I've tried everything. It's just not within me alone to do this. I need your help. Seven years later, here I am. A lot there, man. A lot there. Um, you know, in that moment, it's a phenomenal story, you know, and I'm sure your travels through Asia, you know, gave you a lot of experiences and insights and questions around the nature of all of this, right? Not, you know, kind of relinquishing your former conditioning and your preconceived notions and giving you a lot of food for thought. And then to come back and, and have this failure and kind of be in the depths of the deep, uh, what what did you find when you, you know, and I know this is intensely personal question, so you can, you can tell me you don't want to talk about it if you like, but when you're in that situation where you've kind of given all you have to give, you've asked all the questions and still no answer is forthcoming. When you ask for, you know, for that question, kind of what's out there to support me, to keep me going, <clears throat> what kind of answer do you receive in a, in a situation like that? So or God you talks to I did, I did, definitely. So it, God talks to us through our emotions and through our experiences. But I had something extra, right? Because, and it's not me that has the extra thing. It was a very special time in time, really. It was, uh, have you heard of the Night of Power? No. It's uh, called Laylatul Qadr in uh, Arabic. It means the Night of Power, the Night of Destiny. And it happens on one of the last... 10 nights of Ramadan. It was when the Archangel Gabriel handed down the last testament to the last prophet. Very special night, right? You don't know exactly what night it's going to be. But any good that you do on that night is multiplied by 30,000 X. 30,000 X. So whether you do any good or bad, there's a massive karma multiplier on that night. And I know I found that night because as I was there, you know, my head to the ground, it's a very special position. You know, you put seven points of your body onto the ground, your toes, your knees, your hands, and your head. And it's in that state where you're closest to God because you're in complete and total prostration. And that's how Jesus prayed. That's how Moses prayed. That's how Abraham prayed. It's in the Bible. That's how Orthodox priests still pray to this day. That's how Muslims pray. That's how Orthodox Jews pray, etc. I highly recommend to go to that position if you ever truly need you know, for God to hear you. And I asked and I begged and I cried and I felt feedback immediately. Immediately, like I've never felt it before. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen to everyone that asks, because clearly I got very lucky. I was blessed to have, you know, gotten that portal that <laughs> was wide open and I got it at exactly the right moment. But what I realized was that we all have a dialogue with the creator at any time. We don't need any middleman. We don't need a priest or a rabbi or an imam or any of that, just ourselves. And that's our God-given gift from the creator. At any moment, we can open up that dialogue. It's peer to source, right? Like, that's the beautiful thing about it. There's no middle parties in between. Whenever you want it, ask. And I became very good at asking, not just for the big things. I would ask even for little things like parking spots. And it literally became my superpower. <laughs> I'm serious. You know, you think about it. They say God loves us 70 times, 70 times more than our own mother. 
that's completely inconceivable to me. Like, I can't even imagine someone loving me twice as much as my own mother. If someone loves you that much, they're going to want to hear you talk to them anytime, right? Like, your mother would love it if you called her up right now and said, hey, mom, what's up? You would never be bothering her, right? So it just allowed me to develop a very deep connection to God. And I began to change. Like, God is a very loving, infinitely loving creator. And it took me a while to reconcile that, right? Anyway, I'm not going to get into the, the whole spiritual sermon there, but that's a that's an exact peek into where like what I turned into. Yeah. Well, I've got no issues with spiritual sermons, but should I infer by your use of you know creator and kind of uh, you know saying that everyone has a God-given right to a direct relationship there that when you say the word God, it's kind of an agnostic God. It's not a particular you know, dogmatic approach, yeah. like it's your own, it's your own definition. It's uh, the only truth in the world that I know is three words. God is one. So all you have to understand that this is a singular entity. That is it. There's not multiples. It doesn't share its authority with anyone, whether you want to call it fate, the universe, Allah, God, whatever name you want to ascribe to it, it is a singularity. As long as you believe that you are a true believer. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, every prophet that ever came to mankind, they always repeated that same message. God is one. And I was like, why does God have to keep sending these humans to keep repeating the same message? But if you look at the world today, like there's literally everything being thrown at you to get you to fall into idolatry. Like, no, money is your God. This other human being is your God. This mission or path or ideology is now your God. Like, it literally is a war. Like we're put here in this mortal realm to be tested, right? So it's all about that, those three words. God is mm -hmm. one. It's definitely not an old man in the sky either. You know, that's that's odd. That's honestly total garbage, right? Anyone that would believe that is an idiot. And that's why for so long I was an atheist, right? Because <laughs> what they're feeding us is just complete nonsense. Like only a child, not even a child would believe that because it goes against natural intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. And so this moment happens you get you know the the download as it were how i mean what is the literal next step you know because this it was a transformative event it sounds like and you went from being as low as you've ever been to almost as lifted or inspired as you've ever been what is the literal next step what happens the next day or what 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 happens the next hour after that so look, I wish I could say, yeah, I know exactly what to do. And I ran out and like, no, it doesn't work that way, guys. It just does not work that way. You know, when you get this download, it is not, you know, specific information. It is it's almost a purging, you know, like you're being cleaned out of, of garbage, right? And you're made pure like a little child. And like a little child, you're going to continue stumbling across the way. But you have to have that faith that you're being guided and keep going, right? Like you, you don't drive from New York to Los Angeles and see the whole way right in front of you, right? You only see 10 meters ahead with those headlights. Right? It's the same thing with that. After that, yes, I was still homeless for like a couple of weeks, maybe like two months after that. Me and my co-founder were running around and it was still extremely hard. But then a friend of mine came up to me one day. I was after, I was after BitDevs, actually, uh, the meetup in New York. And he said, hey, Ray, you don't look too good. What's going on? And you look kind of haggard. And I'm like, yeah, you know, bro, startup is going kind of hard right now. But, you know, we're still a great, you know, typical, you know, serial entrepreneur talk, yeah, right. grizzled. But he said, hey, bro, you can, you know, you can make like 50% profit 
selling bitcoins for gift cards. I was like, what? Why would that doesn't sound legit? But I said it sounds like a scam. But hey, I tried it because I was no position to be rejecting any possible opportunities here. And it actually worked. You could trade $250 worth of Bitcoin for a $500 PayPal My Cash gift card. And I was like, wow, how is this even possible? And I did it once, I did it twice, it kept working. I said, hey, let's scale this up. We did, and boom, me and my co founder, Artur, we got a place to live. And we're like, this is amazing, man. Like, gift cards. And Bitcoin is a dynamite combination. It's a $140 billion a year industry. And it's the way to onboard the unbank. Let's build a platform around this, right? And again, this whole thing didn't happen like right after that magical moment, right? There was still, you know, some hard times to go through, a couple of weeks or whatever, but it did happen. And even then, like we said, okay, well, let's build this platform. Now it was at that point that me and my co-founder sat down, 72-hour stretch, we built the first version of Paxful. 72 hours over a weekend, we just grinded it down and built it. I, I designed it. Uh, I designed database. I did the, you know, the DevOps and all that. And he actually just like, we wrote all the code to do it. And I was a coder too. I wrote a little bit of code, but we built that thing together in 72 hours. And that's how Paxel was born. But, you know, after we built it, we we're sitting around and was like, hey, wait, what are we going to call this? We didn't have the name Paxful yet. And we sat down and we you know, started looking on Google and just searching all of these domain names. And, you know, we settled on the name Paxful because we were looking at the word peace, right? Because we believe that honest, open money could lead to a peaceful world, right? Because bankers, you know, the only way they can fund wars is by printing up ridiculous amounts of money. Otherwise, humans are peaceful creatures. We don't want to go to war, right? But an honest money system will create for a peaceful world because wars can't just be started. So, Pax means peace in Latin. Essentially, the name of Pax was peaceful, right? Because the world trying to create a world of wealth. If we're all happy and doing great, we're not going to go at each other's throats. So mm -hmm. that's how Pax was born. Very cool. Very cool. So, you know, when, when this all started, when you realized that this was a business model that you could go for, like this is coming right at the end of what sounds like a lot of deconditioning about your worldview and having constructed a new worldview that changed your spirituality, your view of politics, your view of money, your view of what you want your life to become. And then it all manifested in, in Paxful. Has that, as you've built out Paxful and seen one, the transformative power of Bitcoin, you know, to reshape not only the political and the economic landscape of individuals' lives, and then as, as social and collective lives, but actually to reshape people's lives in many other ways, once that level of security is achieved over their savings. You know, it's just something that we don't we don't talk about that much. And I try to explore it on this pod is, you know, what happens to people in terms of their sense of freedom and liberation when they can have a confidence that their sacrifices that they've previously made that are represented in their money cannot be taken from them either directly or surreptitiously via inflation. How does that change the human spirit, knowing that they have a far greater foundation on which to live their lives, knowing that they're far less beholden to other people and other forces and other factors and influences because of that security. And I think it dramatically, and, and I think it's a process just like your journey was a process of, of feeling and, and responding to this sense of freedom and then determining who you want to be with that sense of freedom that you're increasingly given access to. So how, like, what was the journey of both you in your continual process of development as you develop 
impactful and began to see just how revolutionary Bitcoin was or is. Yeah, well, you put it very well. So it was really a parallel journey because you got to remember me and my co-founder like literally just got off the street with this, right? And then we, you know, we started to get people into this thing and teach people, hey, like, look at this. You can trade Bitcoins for gift cards and other things and you can actually make a business out of this, right? It's kind of a financial service, right? You're, you're transforming one form of money, say a gift card into Bitcoin, right? And then from there, you can take that Bitcoin and transform it into another form of money, like another gift card or a PayPal deposit or a bank transfer. And you can actually create a kind of loop, right? We call them trade routes, right? And we started saying, hey, there's other trade routes available. We can increase our profit margins here. We can service this community here. And we can replenish our supply of Bitcoin like that. It became a real business. And we began, we became so excited every time we discovered a new trade route, whether it involved drop shipping, gift cards, whatever it was, literally Bitcoin could add value to every single leg of this trade route. And we're like, this is amazing. And as we were doing this, we were teaching others how to do it as well. And then, you know, I, you know, me and my co-founder bonded over the belief that Bitcoin could help a little bit, right? That it wasn't just an asset class created for rich kids to play around with, right? They already have enough things to play around with. This is a tool to help real people transact. And it was at this time that I started, you know, talking to a lot of Africans online, right? Like really trying to introduce them to Bitcoin in a very positive way. And it was difficult at first because a lot of them thought it was a scam. Because around this time, the scams that are crypto scams that already started up in Africa, one coin, et cetera, was bilking people for their money. But I started to invest in a lot of this, you know, me and my co-founder were making some Bitcoins at this time and I would give my Bitcoins away to all these, you know, various Africans I'd meet online trying to teach them how to actually trade Bitcoin. And I talked to so many Africans, most were very gentle people, right? But there was one particular community which I was very impressed with and that would be the Nigerian community. Like those guys just got it, man. And they went at it with a ferocity that was mesmerizing to me. I was like, these guys are real entrepreneurs. And I focused everything on Nigeria. We went over there, met the people on the ground, me and my co-founder. And I was like, wow, Africa is going to lead cryptocurrency adoption. I said that six years ago. Everyone thought it was crazy. They're like, no, Africans only make $2 a day. How are they going to get into Bitcoin? It's too complicated. They'll never figure it out all this garbage. And now Africa is leading, right? So it was really a kind of, it was a parallel journey with the African people. Like we were teaching them about this and then they started teaching us about this. Like they started building own businesses on this. They started building little versions of Western Union and PayPal on top of Bitcoin using Paxful. And we were just amazed. Like they figured out uses for this open-ended marketplace that we would never have seen. And it just it blew us away. Like, and then we started tailor making the product for them, right? So it was a very reciprocal, parallel journey. We were learning from them; they were learning from us. But really, we were we were really learning from them. Yeah. And the more I saw that you know people had success, it just built up confidence, right? And they would go even harder, and it would spread. And that's how packs will do. Ninety five percent of our traffic comes from word of mouth. We don't do advertising, right? It's the mm -hmm. people that spread packs will. And is Africa your biggest market at this point? By far, yeah, absolutely. We got the first Bitcoins into Africa and that was a huge challenge because six years ago, like Nigeria, the price of Bitcoin was like 70% over market price because there was no Bitcoin in the country. So how do you get Bitcoin into a place like that? 
you know, their, their leading export is cacao beans. It was $10 million for a minimum order of cacao beans, right? So how are we going to get the Bitcoins in? We had to give the Nigerians a digital asset that they could import and, you know, connect them to a counterparty that would give them Bitcoins in exchange before Africa could become fertile with crypto, right? And it was gift cards and connected them with Chinese gamers who would take it at a discount. So based on that one trade route alone, we opened up all of Africa. It's a huge hack, but it worked, right? And Paxo has just been a series of hacks, you know, wherever you see a problem, you figure out, okay, Bitcoin can solve it. What other tools do we have to do this? Yeah, two, two questions on that. One, what's it like? Because one of the, you know, we talk about liberation in various forms. And, you know, one of the aspects of being an entrepreneur is being in control of your own destiny effectively. And that's obviously a sense of freedom and liberation that comes with a lot of meaning which you experience individually as a result of being successful in, in business, let's say, but then to bring that same opportunity to so many people, I'd love to know what kind of emotionally that filled you with or what that feeling was like. And two, what does it feel like? Because you just mentioned that you kind of opened up the market for Bitcoin in Africa, right? Like you gave people access to this money and, knowing what we both know about what Bitcoin represents and how fundamentally important and revolutionary it is, it's quite, it seems to me to be quite the, uh, quite the accomplishment or quite the, it's fairly momentous to bring that to an entire continent, right? So do you, do you give any thought to kind of even the historical impact of bringing the soundest money that we've ever had, the future base layer of civilization, let's say, to an entire continent of people who obviously historically have been underserved and abused and, and uh, taken advantage of. Uh, in retrospect, it's, it's pretty romantic. It's awesome. It's like, you can say it's heroic, but it, it, you know, me and my co-founder, as hard as working as we were, again, like we were, we, were, we didn't get lucky. We were blessed. You know, I almost feel like we're two bumbling stooges there trying to put all this stuff together and make all these hacks work. And we're like, oh, look at these poor fools trying so hard. God's like, let me give them a little help here. And it was really the, the drive and tenacity of the African people, particularly the Nigerian people, that made all this work. So I have to give all credit to them, really. And it was their ingenuity that showed us that the killer app of Bitcoin. <clears throat> It's not trading and speculation. It's really as a means of exchange. Like they're the ones that showed us that because in Africa, they don't see Bitcoin like we do. Like, especially in the beginning, <clears throat> it wasn't an ideological thing. Oh yeah, this will free us from the bankers. And it's, you know, the, you know, it's peer to peer. Like they, they didn't care about any of that. They just like, can this help me? Is this a side hustle that can <clears throat> get me a step closer? to having a prosperous life. And if so, how can it do it? Can it solve the problem I have today with sending this payment here or receiving this payment there? And once you show them that, then they just started building around it, right? And now, now you're starting to see this ideology of what Bitcoin actually is really take root, right? Because the biggest problem we had in the beginning was that whenever you mentioned Bitcoin or crypto, everyone would think scam right away in Africa. And we saw this during our campus tour. We went to Kenya and South Africa eight different universities. We gave away one Bitcoin at each university, spread out amongst the students. And every single time I spoke to them and I mentioned Bitcoin and crypto, they were like, the room would be literally silent. They'd be looking at me like, really? 
And it's because they had been scammed or knew someone had been scammed. Nearly everyone in the room had been like involved in something or heard something about a cryptocurrency scam, right? But once you give it to them in a different way, they really begin to understand it and they appreciate it and they start building on it. You know, and again, it's it's all the people, brother. Like as heroic it is, is what we did, what we did is nothing. It was really the peoples of Africa that showed us everything. And I don't just say that to sound humble, like they really showed us everything. Like I'm the kind of CEO that is talking to our users every single day, doing customer support on Twitter, on Instagram, on Telegram, on WhatsApp, on our own site, on Zen, like everything. And all that feedback goes back into the product. That's why I can say this. How are they using, like why Nigeria? Why is it so robust there? How are they using it? What's going on? Well, there's two things. Number one is the, the DNA of the people. I mean, I really think God put something extra into those people. They're amazing the way they pursue solving problems. But the truth is they have a lot of problems, right? Like, you know, the people are immensely gifted. They're very well educated. They're like six, they're young, but there's 60% youth unemployment in Nigeria. If you go to Lagos, even for a single day, you're going to encounter a pressure cooker of humanity. Imagine like Miami in the 80s on steroids and crack. And that, that's like Lagos. It is intense. The hustle is beyond anything you can imagine. People will get on a four-hour commute from the, you know, the outskirts of the city into the city through immense traffic, work like you know 12 hours, and then drive back for four hours. If they get back home, they're lucky to sleep for an hour or two. Like That is literally real life there. And the problems with money are immense. Like if you get a, if you have a bank account, in Nigeria. And most of our Nigerian users are actually banked. They have multiple bank accounts because they're trying to get as much financial access as possible. But even if they have a bank account, they have ample money in the bank account and they get a Visa or MasterCard debit card, they're only limited to $100 a month they can spend online with it. Can you imagine that? If all the plastic in your wallet only amounted to $100 you could spend on, online a month. It's crazy, right? If you want to send a payment outside of Nigeria to America or China, it's nearly impossible. You would have to take that Naria, local money, sell it for USD on the black market, lose money there, and then find a way to get that USD into a bank account somewhere that could get that money to whatever destination you want it to be. And most people don't have that kind of access. Some people might have a friend that lives in New York or you know lives in Sydney or Singapore, and they could depend on them to do that, but they don't. They're completely cut off. They can't make the payment, so they can't import those goods to sell. And they can't get payments from the outside either. You know, only the scammers who weren't even Nigerian, most of them were like outside companies or professional scammers working. So it left the people literally with zero access. And the more I saw how bad it was, I gave it a name. It's economic apartheid. It truly is. Like their money is not as good as our money. And it goes even deeper than that. Because the reason the people are in that situation, that there's so many restrictions imposed on them, not just by the outside, but even within their own countries, right? In some one cases, okay, the banking system there is is like a fragmented SWIFT that is completely inept, right? You can't even send money from Nigeria to Togo easily. It's a nightmare. You're better off just getting on a plane or a bus with a suitcase full of cash, right? There's 2,000 payment networks in Africa. Only 3% of them actually talk to each other. If you're an M-Pesa user in Kenya and you have a, your you know, brothers an M-Pesa user in Ghana, you can't even send money to each other on that, on this neo-banking platforms either. Like literally everywhere you look is a, is a wall. Like the money is in a prison. They can't transact. And that's why Africa is where it is. 
you know, besides the French and the Belgians still being there exploiting the people, they are literally besieged on every corner by financial apartheid. You know, imagine how prosperous would America be if you couldn't transact from New York to New Jersey? Like, where would America be? And that's the reality for Africa right now. So the more I saw those problems, it just it became like, wow, if anyone needs help, it's these people. So who's going to help? No one else wanted to help Africa at that time. Like now everyone's trying to get it back then. It's like, oh, I'm not going to go and talk to some Nigerian about Bitcoin. Like, no way. And that's why Paxful is here. It's because we're willing to do what others are not. You know, and we're willing to go where others are not willing to go. What kind of trade routes, as you term them, are emerging today? You know, like what, given what Paxful is capable of doing and what they have been doing, what kind of opportunities, use cases, how, because obviously this is spreading, right? Like everyone is starting to get the Bitcoin message, this open decentralized global network of value transfer, as you just said, has a tremendous amount of, of value to people that are siloed in their respective countries and can't transact in certain amounts and their currency is garbage and all this kind of stuff. So the cat is getting out of the bag and obviously it's incredibly exciting, but how are you seeing uses and, and demands shift vis-a-vis uh, -vis what you guys are trying to provide and what you guys are trying to do in terms of mission? It's all about use cases and corridors, right? And then the entrepreneurs bring that together. So I'll give you an example. Use case remains, corridor, Nigeria, no, sorry, South Africa to Nigeria, right? Nigerian migrant workers in South Africa get paid in cash. They don't have a local bank account. So how do they send money back home to mama, right? Western Union will charge them 25% and lose money at the exchange rate as well. One aspiring Paxful entrepreneur uh, saw that problem and he said, hey guys, why don't you deposit that South African rand into my bank account? and give me your mother's bank account number or your bank account in Nigeria. And I'll get the money over to them literally the same day. And I'll charge you half as much as Western Union. And he did it and it worked. And he made a very profitable business off of that. All he did was to use the South African bank account with that cash to buy Bitcoin on Paxful. And then he would take that Bitcoin and sell it to someone on Paxful who was in Nigeria and said, hey, just do a local bank transfer from your local bank account to this person's instantly done. He would even make money on selling the Bitcoin to that person in Nigeria. And he still managed to undercut Western Union by half. So this guy basically built his own little version of Western Union using peer-to-peer -peer and Bitcoin. And there are people who have done the same thing with PayPal, payments from Kenya to Malawi, etc. So it's a game of use cases and corridors. And it, their combinations are literally infinite, right? Like how many countries do you have in the world? You have, say, five major use cases and all of these corridors that can be built and all these different industries that can be served. Possibilities are endless. And every single payment method, you support 400 of them has different arbitrage as well and all these different currencies. So you got 400 times 123 times these many use cases and this many possible. Like it, it's a massive number of possible trade routes that can be built. Is it is it fair to call Paxful today uh just a, a platform for you know a marketplace for using bitcoin to move money around i mean how would you describe paxful today because it's obviously you know i think some people might just have a limited view of what paxful is it's like gift cards and bitcoin that sort of thing but obviously it's a hell of a lot more today so what, what would you describe it as 
Well, in the beginning, it, it's a marketplace, right? And it still is, but the marketplace is really one of our products. You know, the marketplace is comprised of a listing service and an escrow. And those two things together give you this marketplace, right? And there's also a wallet, which is a foundational structure. But you combine all that together with an entrepreneurial community and all of these problems. And what you really get is a kind of universal translator and transporter of money. Like literally money can be moved, not just to different destinations and currencies, but in different containers. You, know, you can put in an Amazon gift card and out the other side, you can get an Xbox gift card in a different place or a PayPal deposit in the UK or a cash in Cambodia. Like any one of those 400 payment methods in currencies can become any one of those other 400 payment methods and currencies in any country. So, and Bitcoin is just that clearing layer in the middle that allows it to all flow. So you could call a universal translator for money. That's really how our users are, are utilizing it. That's very cool. Very cool. Um, what do you make of the state of Bitcoin generally today? Uh, and perhaps also, how does it affect what you guys are doing? I mean, I know when we were both down in Miami, we had the big El Salvador news. You traveled to Zante uh, to check out what things are like on the ground. I'd love to hear about your experiences there. But what, what's kind of your impression? You got into this at least partially, of course, out of necessity and all that stuff. But because you realize that we got to fix the money, we got to fix the base layer before we can worry about any of this other stuff. Right. And so part of part of your involvement in this space, aside from being an entrepreneur and wanting to make money, is there's obviously a big mission component to this, an ideological component to this. So. Where do you think things are at today in, in the space? And then and, and secondary, what was, uh, what was it like in El Salvador? So unfortunately in the space, I still see a lot of the same intercoin strife and factionalism happening. And, and you know, none of that is conducive to moving things forward. And uh, people forget that we're one community and we have to stay united, keep all the channels open and build with each other, right? There's no reason that we can't all help each other out. So. I'm always you know, optimistic. I hope there'll be more unity and more, you know, work people working together instead of fighting with each other and making moves about each other. What kind but, of fighting with each other are you referring to? Uh, for example, I made a thread uh, just yesterday and asking anyone, hey guys, we're gonna, anyone from Solana or Polkadot wanna help us build the first Bitcoin city in Africa, right? Mm -hmm. Honest question, I was looking for, I know these, Blockchains have some amazing talent. I was like, hey, does anyone here want to lend your talent to helping us do something amazing with Bitcoin in Africa? And instead, the first 20 responses were just people hating on me, you know, toxic maximalism, even though I'm a maximalist myself. And I'm like, really? I mean, you, you can't broaden your scope enough to see that we could actually borrow some talent from other projects to help fulfill this project. It's like, ah. Oh disappointing right? right but you know right. that's it's just constantly like that but anyway that just noise so el zante right so i heard about what was happening in salvador i said i gotta get over there right so i heard you know there's a delegation going there so i go with them and i said okay let me check this out i get there and i spend the first two hours meeting with government officials and all that and then i skip the second day and i just go straight to el zante and i skip i skip the second the first the second part of the first day and the whole second day I wasn't really interested in meeting the president or the government. I wanted to see what was happening on the ground. For an entire country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender, there had to be some serious street hustle to make that happen. And I wanted to meet the people behind it. You know, it was, that's what, how we did it in Africa. People asked us, like, how did you guys do this? 
in Africa, how did Nigeria become, you know, the leading country for Bitcoin adoption, right? What actually happened? And there's no magic formula there. They just constant street hustle, being led with empathy, people talking to people, people teaching them how to do their first trade and send their first Bitcoin face to face, right? And that's what I wanted to see in El Zante. So I went straight to Bitcoin Beach. I drove there myself, rented a car. And I met the people that were doing it. You know, I went on a surfing lesson with them and all the children. And I, you know, bought my first Bitcoins with Lightning with the Bitcoin Beach wallet. I bought my first, uh, it was a Papusa, you know, Zante <laughs> Lightning. And it was awesome. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And the more I met the people there, I was like, okay. So this wasn't, you know, Jack Mahler's or Paxco or any other company doing this. This was the people over the course of three years educating evangelizing and just being you know empathic human beings showing the other people that this is a good option learn about this so i got exactly what i came for i met the people that actually made bitcoin beach in el salvador reality and i said i gotta help these people we have to make sure that el salvador is a success not just for the peoples of el salvador and central america but for the even you know longer term prize of getting making it easier for the african nation states to do the same and what, you know, how has that inspired you or what role do you see for Paxful in a place like uh, El Salvador, Central America, any countries that are in a similar situation? So we're really good at <clears throat> retail adoption, mainstream adoption, getting Bitcoin into the country, uh, teaching people how to use it to solve real problems. That's our specialty. In El Salvador, because the government plans to actually drop ship uh, $30 worth of Bitcoin, airdrop $30 worth of Bitcoin to everyone in the country, that's not a big problem, right? You're going to have some Bitcoin in the beginning. So what value can we lend to that process? We can show them, hey, once you have the Bitcoin, what can I do with it, right? And that's what we're building out right now. We're talking to the banks, to the government, to the top payment methods in the countries and the telcos to try to streamline that out. So the question of, okay, I have a Bitcoin. Now, what can I do with it? That question must be answered. If you answer that question, then retail adoption will move so much faster. It won't just be something that people take or liquidate or take and just hodl. You know, hodling is nice, but turn it into an actual everyday thing that solves real problems for people and shows them new opportunities, that is really the prize here because that's how we build an economy. Was it, was it wild just seeing people transact with Lightning? You know, because most of us have never, we've all spent a little Bitcoin, but we've never been immersed in a place where people are like openly and consistently transacting with this stuff, especially on the Lightning Network, which itself is only a few years old. So what was that like, just seeing it happen in, out in the wild? Yeah, I have to admit, I had never done any kind of retail lightning transaction in my life and then i did it in el salvador for a papusa from this lady and i was it could have been my mother and i was like this is surreal <laughs> i would never have seen this coming like it all came out of nowhere but it's awesome and it shows you like the potential of lightning right like it who made this happen it wasn't adam back and liquid and all these super smart nerds you know sitting in their ivory towers it was literally the people of this little beach town in this little central american country to spend past three years building, educating, and just being, you know, your friendly next door neighbor that likes this Bitcoin thing. And it worked. So I just wanted to see it in person. It was real. And it's totally trippy. I still can't believe it, but it's real, guys. It's happening every yeah. day over there. It's so poetic. I, I love it. I love it. Um, what, 
you know, just back to the kind of personal aspect of all this, I, you know, I presume working in this space, you continue every day to see how people are using Bitcoin and to see the possibilities of Bitcoin. And like you just said, lightning opens up another universe of possibilities that, you know, that's going to foster that, that'll probably onboard the billions of users for, for Bitcoin, you know, using lightning and lightning based services. Um, how has this journey, you know, almost, well, I won't say exclusive from Paxful, but how, how is this journey, particularly learning about Bitcoin, shaped in an ongoing fashion, your, you know, your worldview in any particular ways? You know, we talked about kind of the lead up to Paxful, but, you know, my experience has been that, that Bitcoin continues to morph and, and, and transform people as they learn more about it and as it becomes a more, you know, meaningful aspect of their lives. Has that been the case for you? Has, you know, have you noticed changes inspired by Bitcoin? Yeah, look, I'll just come out and say it. Without Bitcoin, the world would be completely fucked right now. It is 100%. literally the only shining light that we have. You know, I used to think it was Ron Paul, right? Some <laughs> people might think it's Donald Trump, but no, it's not any of that. It's not Elon Musk either. We all know that right now. It's not any of these fake messiahs, right? Bitcoin mm -hmm. is our connection to each other. You know, it, it is... It's really a blessing from God. I don't know how else to say it. If you're, if there's any one thing you want to put your faith in right now, and you want to put your energy and your momentum behind, put it into Bitcoin. Yeah. Not crypto, not crypto. And I'm not a toxic maximalist. I consider myself a Bitcoin optimalist, right? Because the more energy and momentum we have behind one central clearing layer, the better it is for humanity. The faster it will grow, and the less noise we'll have to deal with from all these speculative projects and BS. So it's all about Bitcoin, guys. Yeah. Bitcoin, as successful as it's been and amazing as it's been, it still needs constant protection. It's still just a baby. Let's not forget that. It's not a teenager or an adult. It's still just like a little baby, and it needs our constant protection. The toxic maximalists, as hard as they are to deal with sometimes, honestly, they're the ground troops. They're the infantry for this whole thing. Without them, the whole thing will collapse. So you must respect that no matter where you stand in the yeah. equation. And this is what I tell people. like Literally, without Bitcoin, humanity is done right now. Like There's nothing else on the horizon. But if we solve this problem, this money problem, and Bitcoin is that, you know, it's peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. It's all about that. And the more we educate people, about peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash and how it works and why it's so empowering to humanity, the better. It's not about the technology. It's about connecting people peer-to-peer, -peer, right? Bitcoin yeah. is just that glue in between. And it all comes down to empathy, right? We are dealing with humans. It's our neighbors now that can solve our financial problems for us, right? That's why this is so awesome. I like how you put that, that Bitcoin is our connection to each other. And, you know, obviously earlier in the chat, you said, that God is unity, right? God is oneness. And so it seems like Bitcoin is a very godly object because of how it connects and brings people together in such a fundamental way of communicating value to one another. Exactly. It removes the middleman, right? I'm not saying to worship Bitcoin or hold it up as an idol, but it is a tool that we have you know, to take back our power. Because the truth is we're living in a world where actual resistance is very difficult. Because if the resistance is centralized, They'll just come at that guy and cut off his head or co-opt him or make him an offer he can't refuse. And then he's gone or be working against humanity, which is even worse. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they can cut the head off any one movement. But they cannot stop an army of mosquitoes 
And that's why peer-to-peer -peer is so powerful. It diffuses away the risk. And anyone that understands how this world works right now understands that there is constant risk and constant pressure. Like we are fighting in an anti-human, highly aggressive entity, <laughs> whatever you want to call this thing that just doesn't like us very much, right? Mm -hmm. But now, like, who cares? We can do, we can make all its plots and plans, but every single day, good people are being connected to good people. And that builds real momentum. And we're going to see the fruits of that in a, in a huge way soon. I really feel there's going to be a huge wave of, of goodness, success, wealth, and prosperity that none of us saw coming and just going to come out of nowhere. And we're going to be like, wow, where did this come from? Like that news is coming very soon. Yeah. El Salvador will just one of those little, you know, sparks, but there'll be more coming. Yeah. I feel like I know the answer to this question already, but you know, a lot, it's almost inescapable in this day and age to not shed light on the craziness, right? The, the oppression, the control, the anti-human narrative, the, the misinformation, the delusion, the psycho, psychopath, you know, the psychopathic behavior everywhere. Like it's really tough to just completely ignore that. And so I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin space do try to shed light on it. But the flip side, as we've been discussing this entire time, is the only thing that's going to change it is Bitcoin. That is the only thing. So is, is it even worth spending time on, on talking about the problem rather than just full bore focusing on the solution? Because that's ultimately what's going to change things. Do you, you know, do you uh, wrestle with those things or are you just full bore solution? And, you know, if you do that work, then the, the results will manifest. I'm all about solution. If I take time to talk about the problem, it's very focused on like a single person at a time just to give them the energy and inspiration to want to work on the solution with me. Like people have to understand the problem. They have to understand the urgency and they have to understand the prize. The prize if we actually do this, like it is literally everything. Like six years ago, I was saying Africa is going to leave Bitcoin. I thought it was complete nonsense. Now I'm saying that there's going to be a golden age and Africa is going to leave that golden age because we have unlocked the value of 600 million young people using the power of Bitcoin and peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. Some people are, again, saying this guy's a nickel poop or he's crazy, but it's going to happen, guys. It's already started. Like, they're already leading the way, right? Mm -hmm. And you bring up, you know, India, Southeast Asia, Latin America, all of these more. Like, let's not forget that money is work. It is human labor put into motion and even being able to transcend space and time. So where are those humans that are going to do the work, right? Like, let's face it, the West is a, is a rotting corpse right now. And it's flailing his arms trying to take down the rest of the world. The future is in these emerging markets, right? This is where you have to go if you want to build. And I keep telling people this. Africa is a rocket waiting to take off. The trillionaires of the future are going to be from Africa. You know, they don't necessarily all have to be African. They can anyone that wants to go there and lend their energy and their belief and their heart to the cause. Be willing to go where others are not. Therein lies your fortune and therein lies our success as humans. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you talk about this prosperity, which I wholeheartedly agree with you, um, do you, what kind of a timeline do you think that will take place on? Are we going to see it? Oh, we're definitely going to see it. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Maximum 20 years. Look, it all depends on how fast we can get out real products. That's, the, like, that's everything. All this manifests through products, right? So I'm shooting up the flare to all the product guys, product gals out there in the world. Look at Bitcoin. 
Look at Africa and the growing wonders of the world. Focus everything there. You will not have any problems finding a problem to solve because the problems are plentiful. The trade routes are plentiful. The corridor, like there's so much there, but you have to dive into it as a product. You can get onto a marketplace like Paxful. Start doing trades. Start talking to the people you're trading with. You're going to see they're actually humans. And if you befriend them, you'll get a great piece of information. They'll be like, yeah, you know, I just found this great corridor. Yeah, from uh, Dominican Republic to Kenya. And I mean, like people just tell me, Dominican Republic to Kenya. And actually, it's a huge new growing corridor on Paxful. And you dive in further and see what are those people actually doing there? Like, what is the use cases there? What is actually happening? And the more you dive deeper into it, the more gems you're going to uncover. I and mean, you might have your next startup. You might have your next co-founder. And that's the way things happen, guys. Be bold and immerse yourself into it and just enjoy every minute of it, right? It's really interesting to consider the platform as establishing these kind of like modern day trade routes, you know, between siloed uh, people and ge geographies that haven't been communicating or had had a lot of friction in their communications in terms of value transfer. And, you know, the fact that the platform is helping to establish greater communication between these, these disparate places. It's huge. I mean, like you went to universities in Colombia. And like you talk to them, like, yeah, I have so many more friends from Rwanda right now. We're doing great. I'm like, Colombians are transacting with people from Rwanda and doing great business. And actually, like, they're going to go visit each other. Like, wow, like, this is the power of this. It, it's like, you know, the power, like, we can do that with email. We can do that with messenger services. But when you bring money into the equation as well, things get real, right? And you yeah. solve the trust problem. It's, it's, it's really the next phase over, right? Do you personally or the company receive, you know, are you receiving attacks for lack of a better term, you know, from the powers that be to try to stop what you guys are doing? Well, things happen, right? We just found out that Paxful.com uh, and all the other peer-to-peer -peer sites got banned in Russia and in Dubai, uh, the United Arab Emirates, right? Where did that happen? We were talking to the regulators, but again, things just happen, right? And, you know, crypto is one thing, Bitcoin is another thing, and peer-to-peer -peer is almost its own animal. Even people within the space are still not understanding the power of these peer-to-peer -peer platforms, right? So it's just a, it's just constant education. These regulators, you know, they're not bad people are out to get us, right? But they're under a lot of pressure. They're hearing about, oh, this guy got scammed here, this guy got scammed there. God forbid they go on crypto Twitter and see that, you know, poops and nonsense happening there, right? We need to educate people about how this is actually helping real humans, right? So it's a big, it's a huge job of education, really. So I'm not worried about it. I remain optimistic. All right. Last question for you, man. I, I appreciate the time and I've been loving uh, hanging out with you. What's, uh, what's, you know, the journey you've been on, as difficult as it's been, and, you know, highs and lows, what is your ambition for the next five, 10, years you know obviously there's going to be a lot with Paxful but is there anything beyond that that you know you you want to be a part of in this emerging world that we're building uh, like I mentioned before I have an interest in science and bringing that to the people but right now I'm all in on Bitcoin and Paxful and peer-to-peer -peer and especially Africa like I have to give that my full heart there's, there's no diluting that process I'm not interested in selling Paxful no matter for how much because literally I couldn't ask for a better vehicle to change the entire world right now. 
So I'm enjoying getting those pictures every week on Twitter. Like, hey, Ray, thanks for helping me buy this new car with Paxful. Like, those things really make my day, right? When I hear about a new success story and someone that just got out of a hard situation and now they're employing their friends and families and having a whole new outlook on life, to me, that's beautiful. And it's only the start. You know, so people ask me about my plans. Hey, Ray, you're going to raise a big round and all this. And I'm like, you know, all that is just operational stuff. It's really the minutia. The question is, who are we helping right now? Where have we made an impact? You know, what countries are we going in there and teaching the youth how to build their own alternative financial network using Bitcoin, just like in Nigeria? Maybe it'll be Cameroon. Maybe it'll be Uganda. Maybe it'll be Ethiopia. And to me, that's what's so exciting. Like, where is the biggest problem right now? We all have to really respect the fact that in this space, we really had the chance to be literal superheroes every day. Because if you look at the world as like a world map and, and the Justice League HQ, right? Every day they had all these rural red blips going off. Inflationary crisis here, deflationary crisis there, sanctions here, money squeeze there, like collapse. At every single one of those places, Bitcoin can literally come to the rescue. The question is, who's going to go in there and educate the people and build out the actual structure and products to do so? And are you willing to put your boots on the ground and do that work yourself? If you are, you have the potential to be saving lives, literally saving lives. Imagine saving the life savings of an entire family and what that's, how that's going to reverberate, the kind of karma it's going to give you. This is the opportunity we have right now. But, you know, Games on centralized exchanges and all this speculative nonsense that doesn't help us, that just pushes like pulls it all back. We need to push it forward. And I encourage everyone understand that peer to peer is how this all began. It was what Bitcoin gave added immense fuel and momentum to. Let's keep all our momentum behind this. Let's focus on real products and let's focus on connecting people with people and really understanding their problems and the places that need Bitcoin the most. If we all do this, if we get even 10% of the best minds in this space to focus there, we will move so much faster. We will have a golden age within 10 years. It can really happen, guys. It can absolutely happen. You can store all the trapped wealth and the immense vastness of this youth that is ready to just go. They've just been waiting for something to show them to go your contribution can be a thousandfold greater than anything you ever imagined. But just do it. Amen. Amen, brother. That's uh, beautifully put. Um, and I couldn't agree more. And I'm just as excited as you are. So uh, look forward to seeing how things unfold uh, in the future. Really appreciate the time, man. Is there somewhere you wanted to direct people to learn more about you, Paxful, anything else before we shut it down? Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter, um, Ray Paxful on Twitter, on Instagram. Look, if you are an awesome talent and you want to put your boots on the ground and really help people and you've got the hustle and the drive, hit me up for real. You don't have to be, you know, uh, have a Harvard degree or be working at Goldman Sachs or anything. We just want to see hustle. And at Paxful, I promise you, this is the company where those super hard workers that just buckle down, keep quiet and work hard. Those are the people that we recognize, we give promotions to, we give raises to first because we notice that. I'm the kind of CEO, I'm not, I'm not a good manager. I don't have a fancy degree. I'm not a great operations genius, but I'm someone that recognizes the best and will always give them the best shot. And we love product people, by the way. So if you're a product guy or gal, come my way, please. Join awesome, us. man. Awesome. Well, look, man, I hope uh, we'll have to crack this open another six months and see where Paxful is at. And maybe 
dig into a bit more of your philosophies because I feel like there's uh, there's more there to be uncovered. But uh, until then, uh, I'll just wish you well, and uh, we'll talk again in the future. Okay, brother. It's been awesome. Right. Thank you so much. All right, brother. Take care. Peace. Bye. Oh, 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 oh,